I'd like to do actually is put myself on the spot. It's it's rare, especially when you do a solo podcast, that you get questioned about the things you think and the things you believe, and you get challenged. And it's quite easy for me to to get one of my friends or associates in boxing to pull me up on things and to question me. But then I think sometimes that can go down a, a bit of a rabbit hole. So what I wanted to do was bring someone who's got clean eyes for the sport, who's got a, a whiff of casual to them, and just have <laughs> someone, you know, grill me for the for the enjoyment of the boxing fans. So I'd like to introduce a, a good friend of mine. Those who know the voice will know who this is. He's just known for the purposes of the podcast as the good doctor, probably the only person in boxing I know who has a an elite level PhD. So the good doctor is here and she will be firing questions at me and challenging the supposed BS that I like to talk. So doctor, welcome to Hello. Inquisition. <laughs> Your Inquisition. Yeah, I think people are just going to call this nepotism and the old boys club. It's a bit like Bunsen Costello here. Will any tough questions be asked? I have no idea. You're lucky I grace you with my presence. Well, they're lucky you grace me with the presence. But I think that just, just to set the scene, I don't know what's coming today. I don't know any of the questions. I don't know anything. I'm just here to have questions fired at me. And I'll put the invite out there. Anyone that wants to come on and fire questions at me, we can make it happen. I, I, you know, the technology is here now. Anyone who feels that they want to call me out about something, we can have it, you know. And if the listeners really want that to happen, then, you know, you know m- make your voices known on Instagram, Twitter, at Highfield Boxing. But look, without further ado, you know, I'm sure you've got some, some questions. It's, a, it's an active few weeks in boxing, so I'm, whenever you're ready, I'll just fire that first question. I want to know what your position is genuinely on Yard Kovalev. Not just with regards to what's going to happen as in the result, but what the fight, if the fight actually means anything significant for prospects, or is it just a money grab? On Saturday night, we finally see Jesus return to earth. <laughs> Let's just be absolutely clear about that. We will, you know, this is the Bible coming to pass in Chechnya, wherever he is boxing. Because to be honest, that's kind of where the Bible was written. They try and say it was Israel, but we both know that's not true. It was actually based in Russia. But no, no, I'm, I'm dicking around. Here's my serious <laughs> answer. It's so binary that there's no, I don't want to hear any of this 50-50 crap from anyone. One of two things is going to be true on Sunday morning. Tunde Ajayi is an absolute genius. Or Tunde Ajayi is the greatest con man in the history of boxing. And the thing is, he will be etched in history in one of those two categories. And that, that, that puts this fight, <laughs> it's not, nominally it's a nothing fight, right? It's, 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 it's a guy on the way down, a guy on the way up fighting each other for a belt. Fantastic. But actually what this is about is one man who really believes that he has the way to train champions over and over again. He believes this is a repeatable formula. This is its first test. Not the sparring with Oval McKenzie, not the sparring at the Mayweather gym, not the sparring with guys like Gabe Rosado, not the sparring allegedly with guys like Andre Sterling. This is it. This is as real as it gets because in Sergei Kovalev, you have a guy who knows how to be a tough guy, but he also knows how to box. So this is the realest test of System 9, as you want to call it. Now, I... I wouldn't want to be in Tunde's position and I wouldn't want to be in Anthony Yard's position. My belief is you go into these sorts of fights 
and there should be no questions. It should merely be a procession, but this is actually the attempt. Now, we could all be wrong, and Anthony R could knock him out in a round, and then Sunday Jai is the greatest British trainer of all time, and there can be no debate about that, because, you know, you're not supposed to do these sorts of things. And were that to be the case, you'd actually, you're, you're rewriting the rules of boxing if Sunday's correct. You're rewriting everything. We all have, we all have to go back to the drawing board. Good coaches, great coaches, shit coaches, coaches on the way up, we all have to go back to the drawing board if Sunday's right. Now, if Tunde's wrong, I don't think we can see him in a boxing gym or boxing arena again. Because he will be so wrong that there's no wait. way he can come back. But wait, are you saying, when you say he's basically changing the game, do you mean how is that his training style or that how he's marked? Because mar marketing is completely different than Warren or Hearn. Or do you mean just how he's protected Yard so much and then just dropped him in the big fight. We have to be careful with the language. I don't think he's dropped him in. He cares strongly enough about him that this will be something that was discussed and agreed between Yard and Tunde Jai as a collective, I imagine. No, knowing them like I do, this isn't something that's come out of the blue. Is the first thing. The second thing is, after this fight, I don't think his marketing will work because if he's, if he's correct, then it's not really marketing. It's truth, right? If he's incorrect, yeah. it's just bullshit. And so it doesn't work. But if he is correct about how to train a fighter, then we're all going to be looking for an Anthony Yard to begin with. And then we're all going to be looking for a variant on System 9. So there'll be a lot more titty-tap pads. There'll be a lot more physical conditioning there'll be a, boxing would change almost overnight but what you'd also see i think is a huge scramble for people to get close to tunde jai as we've talked about before joshua's in need of a new skills coach if what tunde does works if you're anthony joshua you're on the phone uncle uncle come on help me uncle do you know what i mean so that that's how i put it now if we break the fight down and we go, okay, what can really happen here? Kovalev is great with the one-two. So Kovalev controls the middle in fights. He did it with Ward in two fights initially. He had that middle control just using the jab and the straight right hand. And then sometimes he'd finish on the straight jab again and almost use it as a power jab. And I don't know if Anthony Yard's used to that because not many boxers in the United Kingdom have that style and that approach. It's very Soviet. It's very, use the bare minimum tools to get the job done. Now, that makes it hard for Anthony Yard to establish a jab, but Anthony Yard doesn't tend to establish a jab. There's a leaping left hook, then there's the counter-punching. I don't think you can counter-punch against Kovalev, which Ward tried in the first fight, and he struggled because the work rate was too high. So in the second fight, he took the, he took the action to Kovalev and had him backing up. When Kovalev backs up, he's half the fighter, 60% the fighter that he normally is. When Kovalev comes forward, he's an absolute savage because the work rate's good and every punch is heavy. It's almost like a Golovkin fight. If you go backwards, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're gonna have to fight fire with fire. And so you say, what can Yard win with? He can win with his counter right hand because that's what he works in. The reason he has the shoulder roll is to release the counter right hand. If his timing's on point and he releases that counter right hand, 
he might ask questions of Kovalev. If he can shovel the left hook into Kovalev's body, he can ask questions of him there too. So there are ways but, Yard can win it, but Jesus, what a test to find out if he can do it or not. But Yard is quite an attacking fighter, isn't he? He's more of a counterpuncher. Unless he's oh. got you hurt, <laughs> then he'll come forward. So this is going to have to yeah. be Anthony Yard stalking. And the thing about stalking is you have to have really good head movement to stalk or just a solid defense. And I don't think he's quite got that yet. But look, we don't know what System 9's about. This might be the missing piece that they've kept hidden. And bang, now it's time. But my head tells me Kovalev should win this. But I'm such a Yard fan that I'm not going to be rational on this. I'm not going to be reasonable. I'm really going to hope that Anthony Yard does win. Because it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so incredulous. I just, if it is right, I want to be on the, I want to be on that side that said, I told you so. More so than, I, more so than I want to be right about Kovalev. I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather people say your mate got iced and I can live with that. And I, I guess this is when your heart rules, your heart rules your head in some cases. And this is one of those. But if I'm being honest with you, it's a damn hard way to win a belt. It really is. Honestly, I just don't understand why he's doing it this way. Everyone talks about how when, you, when you're building your fighter, you guys talk about how you have to have learning fights or the value of the amateur background. And maybe the way Tunde's been framing everything is that he doesn't spar and it's all about the pads and all that stuff. Maybe that's all just to distract. He does spar. But, pardon? He does spar, it's a fact. Anthony Yard spars. Does he, okay. does he have two or three hard spars a week? Hell no. But every so often, he'll just jump in and he'll get taken. I mean, he'll get taken into deep water because there are guys at the Peacock that can give him that kind of work. We've talked about Andre Sterling and there were rumors that those guys went life and death for six rounds. Now, is Andre Kovalev? No, he's not. But that kind of yeah. tough sparring against he, someone who's essentially a peer can also be good in, in just keeping you sharp, keeping you alert, and understanding that this sport's not a joke. So I think what we need to all do as boxing fans is suspend all boxing logic. At this point, boxing logic doesn't work in terms of how you train a fighter, in terms of how he's going to fight, in terms of how they've built up this fight, because this has been a short, sharp shock in terms of a builder. They've kind of just shown up, done the media stuff, disappeared and fought. Very old school. So everything, nothing makes sense at this point, and we all need to just go into this fight, sit down, get your, get your six-pack of Thatcher's, I prefer Thatcher's Casey, get your popcorn, <laughs> I mean, get some turkey chorizo, I mean, all that sort of stuff. Get your food ready. Sit down and just take it in. I don't, who knows who's on the undercard? We're not bothered. We just want that main event because this is it. This is one of the longest-running sagas in boxing reaching its, its conclusion. You know, from 2012 when I first got wind of, wind of Anthony Yard to now, this has been about seven years. We've waited to see what does Sunday's method do under pressure, and Saturday we get to find out. So what do we know about Tunde's system? Well, we know what he tells us, right? Because that's all we can believe. There's not much you can discern from it. It's low, low on the traditional cardio approach of running, cycling, whatever. 
it's low on the traditional elements of sparring you know there's some bag work there's a lot of pad work lengthy pad sessions and and that's pretty much it and there's a lot of there's a lot of teaching there's, there's a spiritual side to it that doesn't really get talked about so they talking about the fighters it's talking about the philosophy of the fight and the psychology of a fight a lot of this gets discussed in that whole system nine thing but what is but, what does but, that but, mean? but, but let's not oh. let's not get sidetracked and believe that yeah. this is something bigger than it is because <laughs> come saturday it could all just turn out to be as you said before a cash grab it could yeah you know, and all System 9 was was an excuse to sell T-shirts. I kind of hope that it does turn out. I mean, everyone is saying how when Ben Davidson took over for Fury, that would be a disaster. But, you know, you have a younger fighter who doesn't have the background who was successful. Got to understand the difference. In Tyson, you had someone who knew, who knew boxing inside out. Ben, Tyson Fury could have gone into all of his fights except for the Wilder fight. He could have gone into all of those on his own. He didn't need anyone in the corner for those fights. Look what happened when he went into the Wilder fight. He he had to get the beef with him. You see what I mean? He had to get the he had to he had to beef up the experience in the camp. So there's a lesson in that. Like nothing beats experience. Nothing. So yard limited amateur background will, is an even more of a problem than limitation. It's all in, well. So if you apply traditional boxing logic, it's all wrong. He didn't have enough amateur fights, hasn't had enough pro fights, hasn't had enough hard pro fights. None of it makes sense when you look at it through the lens of traditional boxing logic. That's why I've said to people, suspend your belief, because nothing makes sense at the moment. Maybe they've cracked it. Maybe they found something we weren't thinking about. I don't know. Maybe they've, this is true disruption. You know, innovation, they talk about disruption. This could be true disruption. So let's not... Let's not try and judge him by traditional boxing logic, because if we do that, then this fight shouldn't be happening. Given this context that you've, that you've just set out for us, could we see the fact that because Yard and Tunde have seen how Kovalev fights, they know what his weaknesses are, they know where, what his strengths are, the fact that they haven't really seen much from Yard, and I'm like grasping at straws here, but is that a, is that a strength for Yard? Um, four, but around, yeah. But you're, <laughs> you're dealing with a guy who's experienced. So whatever surprise Yard has in store for him, Kovalev will pick up very quickly. You know, he's experienced. He's he's. Look, this is a guy that's been in the ring with guys like like Matty Kobarov as an amateur, Baturbia as an amateur. You know, he's he's done his rounds and he's done his time. He he. There are no surprises for a man like Kovalev. So whatever Yard has, man, unless he unless he stands on his hands and literally tries to box with his feet, there's not much he's going to do that's going to surprise Kovalev. And the surprise factor he has, Kovalev will compute a solution pretty quickly. And and is it, it this is where it gets tricky. When you're Sergei Kovalev, what you're preparing for is to perform at your best, right? The best Sergei Kovalev beats the best Anthony Yard, even if it's just based on experience. Right, so you sharpen your tools up, you work your routines, you make sure that what you're capable of doing is what you're going to do on the night. And if you're able to do that, if you're able to give out a 10 out of 10 performance, you become Anthony Yard's problem, and that's what you want to do in boxing. I want to be your problem, I don't want you to be my problem. And with, to achieve that, you eliminate all errors. 
That's what that's what training to perform is about. You eliminate all errors, all defects. So on fight night, you perform at your best. Now the other person's got to go. What do I do now? Yeah, and but that's pretty idealistic. I mean, the things that people have been talking about with Kovalev when he fought Ward and his former trainer was it John David Jackson? Is that his name? Yeah. About how he Kovalev and. I could be remembering incorrectly, but that he doesn't train properly, that he spends a lot of time playing and not taking things seriously and going into a fight with a, with a young man who has a very limited record. Like you have then the whole idea of hubris coming into it as a factor. It's what you're describing is an ideal situation that, it's worth noting that's the same man that went 20 rounds with Andre Ward. Probably the best fighter to make his debut since the year 2000. So it's, it's about levels. If you can go that distance with Andre Ward, something that guys like Chad Dawson couldn't do, then yeah. you operate at a certain level, in, intrinsically at a certain level. So the worst version of Kovalev we've seen would run through any British light heavyweight right now. He could turn up hungover and he'd give them all nightmares. And that's not to disrespect the young guys coming up. It's just saying he's at a certain level. And even if you catch him on a bad day, you still have to be at your best. Now imagine if Kovalev is somewhere near his best. Yeah. But your best might not be good enough. I don't believe you can rely, catch, you can't rely on catching someone on an off day as a trainer. I think it's lazy coaching. You've got to prepare for the best Kovalev. And if the best Kovalev doesn't show up, happy days. But if he does, at least you're prepared. If you're preparing for a guy who's getting old and is probably hungover and has been doing too many drugs, <laughs> that's, if that's what you prepare for and the best Kovalev shows up, it's a short night for you. He's, he's too powerful. He's too nasty. He's too brutal a guy to, to, to take that kind of gamble with, is how I'd look at it. We know that when it came, comes to Yard Kovalev, who's the A side and the B side, okay? That's easy because of everything you set out. But the thing that I've never been able to effectively understand is when it comes to what people describe as 50-50 fights, like Wilder Joshua or Canelo, Triple D, whatever, how do you actually decide who's the A side and the B side? Because some people say it's about belts. Some people say it's about record. Some people say about the draw, like who your market is or something like that. Can you explain, there please? Are, there are about 50 elements. But we don't need to go into all of them. But the key ones are who's promoting the show is the main one. Number two, who's really got the bargaining power? Now, if you look at someone like a Charles Martin, he was the A-side because he was a champion. Right? Josh was the draw. There's no question about that. They're essentially paying Martin to hand the belt over. But Martin's, Martin's the champion. So it's about who's got that bargaining position. Oh, you want me to bring my belt to London? You better put me on the left-hand side of the poster. You better say my name first. Okay, we'll do that. But in exchange, Josh has got to come out last because they've all come to see him. Okay, I'm not that bothered about that. You know, there are all kinds of possibilities that can happen when you negotiate. So... This myth about the A-side is more an ego thing. What they're essentially saying is, I'm the most important person here. And that can be down to any number of different factors. Yeah. 
sometimes you need a dance partner to define your legacy so they become more important than you are even if you are the cash cow you know Uh, let's just say that there was no rematch clause in the joshua ruiz contract ruiz would have a really strong bargaining position because he would have all the belts the very thing joshua wants even though joshua's the actual economic draw ruiz is an incredibly strong position because he can go elsewhere with those belts so it's 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 never as simple as and this is one of the things you have to pull boxing fans, especially boxing Twitter about. You know, that we use these terms glibly, like he's the A side, he's the B side. As if it's binary. And actually it's not. It's probably more a uh, 52-48% sort of thing. Where that guy's just about the A side. There's some cases like with Joshua where if Joshua fights Kubrat Pulev, then he's clearly the A side. If he fights Wilder, is he really the A side? Mm. You wouldn't be salty if either one of those guys was on the A-side. Is there any real value to saying I'm the A-side versus B-side other than when you're negotiating? Like, it's not, it doesn't contribute to your legacy or anything like that. Of course it doesn't. No. It's, it's, it's that thing of when you're the A-side, you choose the gloves, you choose the venue, you can choose, you know, you can choose most of the variables and turn them in your favor. Mayweather was really good at that. Even down to the gloves, he'd specify which gloves he had to fight with. And that's what the that's what A side power gives you. You can stack the deck in your favor. That's just like sanctioned corruption. It, no, well, sport sports about taking any advantage you can, right? It doesn't yeah. matter what sport that is. If if you can sharpen your skate so you can do the speed skating point one of a second faster, you'll sharpen your skate. Whether it's in the rules or not, it's irrelevant. You will do that if you can do that. And and that's kind of what's happening here. Look, we need to stack the deck in our favor. And so sometimes it's we need to maximize our earning potential. There, and there's any number of reasons you w- you'd want to be the A side. But I don't know if I'd call it corruption. I think it's just standard gamesmanship. You mentioned Joshua. So I have a question for you with regards to when we talked, when we looked at Joshua Ruiz, everyone was saying how Ruiz was quite an unexpected champion because of the state of his body shape, you know, a bit tubby and chubby and you couldn't see his muscles. So this is why I want to ask about Joshua with regards to why, why are his big muscles bad? I mean, the kind of physique that he has now is fundamentally different than what we had, say, with Ali or Liston. You know, they were much more slender. In, they were muscular, but much more slender. So, why are why is Joshua's physique bad for how, if you want to be a boxer? So generally, I have all that to my head. So, if you just assume people have got bigger over time, better nutrition, better medication, you know, big people breeding with big people, producing even bigger people. So we've 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 just grown as a as a civilization. But if you go back to the 70s, a man like Ken Norton was walking around at around 225, 230. That's not that much below Joshua, and Ken Norton was, what, 6'2"? So he was one of those anomalies. You had guys like Ron Lyle who were comparable to Joshua in size. So it's not that Joshua is big. It's that they had to add this bulk on him because what he is is manufactured. He was a 6'6 lump that could punch a little bit, and they said, if we make him bigger, stronger, and fitter, he can just do more of this basic stuff for longer. And what that meant was, he 
Joshua at the Olympics was around 140 kilograms. I think fight nights now he's doing 112 to 115 maybe at a guess. That's that's an eight kilo increase. Now, is that natural weight for him? Probably not. So his body will struggle with that. And you know, he's not set up for that. There are some people who are naturally that big and they can do it. There are a lot of rugby players that are that big and they can run for 80 minutes. You know, genetics play a big part in it. But the challenge I'll actually is I'll turn the question around and go, would Joshua gas out so much if he knew how to really box? If he understood where he was in the fight, if he understood what what tactics he had to do, if he could read the tactics of the other guy, like a James Tony could, like a Roy Jones could, would he then have stamina issues? I don't know. But that's just, it's, it's always one of those interesting things to discuss. But as long as Joshua's nervous about getting dropped and getting hurt, it's that stress that tends to drain the energy. So when you drop Joshua and he gets into survival mode, you can see the energy visibly drain from him. And that's the challenge, I think. I think when you're rebuilding Joshua, it's not giving more stamina. I don't think you can. They've got scientists and they've got altitude chambers in Sheffield for that. It's this. It's Let me take all the stress away from Anthony in the ring so he can enjoy himself in that ring and he can be comfortable with the tactics, the geometry and the geography of what's happening in that fight. Bringing the stress levels down means he enjoys it more, he feels better, he can last longer. Yes? Well, what you're talking about is the psychological side. If he's here, if he has fear in the ring, fear of being dropped, and fear of not being able to recover, then it doesn't matter what shape he's in. And that's the point, right? And you, that, that's the exact point. Andy Ruiz was comfortable in the ring against Joshua, therefore it didn't matter what shape he was in. He knew what he had to do, and he knew he was capable of doing it. And w- this is what we talked about before. When you train to perform, you become the other person's problem if you're at your best. And that's what happened with Ruiz. As soon as he dropped Joshua, and he ascended to that level that people had told us he was capable of, but we had never seen before. As soon as he ascended to that level... The fight was easy for him. You didn't see him take a rest. He didn't need to take a rest at that point. Whereas Joshua, having used up reserves of willpower to get back up twice in a round, he couldn't refill the tank. And people say big muscles burn. That's kind of true, but there are times Joshua's gone 12 rounds. So it's not always true. It's how much pressure do you put on someone psychologically to drain the tank? Yeah, but when he went when he went 12 rounds, he was not really attacking. He was being smart. Like that, that was with Parker, right? Yeah, he was being smart. That's what I mean. Can, can Joshua be smart? Now, that doesn't always mean you have to be defensive. It just means you have to be smart enough to, to understand what's going on in that ring. And against Ruiz, he wasn't. He, he couldn't read the speed. He couldn't read the combinations. He couldn't understand why Ruiz wouldn't go backwards. And all those things contributed to him just the will emptying, because let's be honest, he wasn't dead tired, because after, as soon as the fight was over, he was able to just walk around, he was able to, to hug and smile and laugh, so physiologically his body was fine, what had happened was his tank had just emptied, his will had gone. Why am I feeling this way? Which has never really been explained, so that could be the effect of being punched, it could be a repeated concussion. It could be any number of things. But what it wasn't was that his body was giving up on him. Because, like I said, after the fight, 
he was fine physiologically. And and I know you've watched this fight, so contrast how Joshua was after that fight with how Holyfield was after the Tony fight. Holyfield was an absolute bitch after that because he he, he genuinely just ran dry. He whatever, that was yeah yeah whatever stamina he thought he had done. Joshua, that wasn't it. He just had the will beaten up. But I can't imagine after watching that fight, I can't imagine seeing Joshua do that. Every single round. No, it's not in him. It's not in him because he's not... He's a manufactured boxer. He hasn't been raised organically. And I know that sounds like... You know, I'm talking about veganism here. But he hasn't. <laughs> it's true. He hasn't been raised organically. He's just had the pesticides and the hormones put in him so he can grow quickly. That's pretty much it. I speak obviously in a metaphorical sense, not a literal. Obviously. So then when you had something like Trezora versus White, one, well, actually both of them, but more one, what is different between Joshua and, if you're saying they, he, that Joshua's not schooled in the art of, you know, the long-term schooling and boxing, White hasn't had that either, but he has demonstrated quite a few times that he's able to, you know, go to the well or, you know. Yeah, but no, going to the well is different. Going to the well is just either you face adversity in life or you haven't. What we're talking about here is can you make sense of what's going on in the ring? Now, Dillian's had stamina issues too. Yeah. At the top level, he's had stamina issues. This, this is not unique to Joshua. This is, this is what happens when, when you're a big guy. And it's, it's like Formula One. There comes a point where you've got to conserve your fuel. And a lot of heavyweights struggle to conserve their fuel because they don't understand where the sources of leakage are. And a big part of it is psychological stress. And they don't understand that. Getting dropped is another one. Being pushed backwards is another one. So all of these elements contribute to you supposedly not having stamina. Even though cardiovascular fitness is good. Your, your cardio is good. But in a fight situation, it's not because there are so many more elements that come together. And that's what makes it difficult. Don't you wonder why it is that people can hit the bag for 40 minutes without a rest and they can't do two rounds of sparring it's not physiological it's the same it's the same effort load but it's the pressure it's the yeah. psychological trauma of having to deal in a high deal with a highly stressful situation so that's why sparring is so significant when it comes to preparing for fights yeah you do your you just you embed your rhythms, you embed your routines until it becomes second nature. So you're not thinking anymore. You're executing. And when you're executing, it's just physiological. When you're thinking and trying to work out what to do, that's when the brain kicks in, that's when the stress kicks in, and that's when it becomes more taxing on the body overall. I don't know if the rumors are true, but the fact of how Joshua, when he prepares for fights, that his sparring is, um, he tends to work with just GB fighters, like then that can't be a real threat. That can't put you through a real test to prepare you for the big guys, like to prepare him for Wilder, for instance, or Tyson Fury. It depends on how you do it. So for those sorts of fights, you'll bring people in. You'll pay the money. 
So I think Joshua's challenge is generally they refuse to pay for sparring. The belief is you get to work with Anthony Joshua, so it's your privilege. Not necessarily. If you, I always find it strange that Joshua sparring partners that give him trouble end up boxing on the zone show or get signed to Matchroom. So you know, I mean, there, there's a reward that in the long run, you know, as long as you keep your mouth shut. But but he said he pays them. He doesn't pay. He'll <laughs> no, he'll pay a guy like Cabell because Cabell's not coming for nothing, right? But you, you're not paying. You're not, you're not paying Dave Allen when Dave Allen's done three, four hundred rounds. You're not paying Dave Allen. You're not paying Cash Ali to come in. You're not paying those guys. But they're the guys who need the money the most. It's a very different approach. I mean, I remember on the New Age pod, you guys were talking about how um, Klitschko would bring all the up-and-comings and he'd put them up and he'd pay them. And that's a very different business model. But Klitschko was doing two things. One, he was looking at his future opponent, so it's an investment worth making. Two, he was building that relationship with them so that he'd always be the respected figure. And then three, he was getting the best guys in to give him the work he needed. So he made the approach of saying, you know what, all this money I'm spending on a training camp is worth it if I keep winning. And it was a good approach. I think it, I think it was the right approach. I, I do think those top-level guys should be bringing people through. Ali did it. You know, all these guys have done it in the past. You know, Larry Holmes came through Muhammad Ali's sparring camps. And he came, so did Ron Williams. A lot of guys have come through Ali's sparring, sparring sessions to become decent boxers because that's how you learn. When I put boxers in with professionals, you learn these small things that make them unique, that make them elite. And then you can start to implement those as early in your career as you can. It helps build the sport too, doesn't it? To an extent, you're right. It you're passing all the goodwill down, you know, and that's what you want to do. You want to you want to share that experience because you make the sport stronger. And so, when it comes time for you to be the old guy, and you got to fight the young up and comers, at least like Klitschko did, he helped build the up and coming guys. So then, when he fought them, you know, he knew what he was getting into. He wasn't stupid in doing that. There was method in his madness. Because then Lennox Lewis said that he had worked with David Price as well? Uh, briefly, yeah. Briefly. <laughs> then he left. Yeah. Look, horses for courses. Sometimes you're not ready to receive the message. And maybe another heavyweight in that situation would have loved working with Lennox Lewis and would have taken a lot more away from it. You know, is How receptive are you to what's being taught? And that's not necessarily a... I don't like Lennox, it's just some people have different ways of learning or they gravitate towards different approaches easier. Well, all that suggests is that Joshua is really looking at, he's been looking at everything very short term. Joshua has or the Joshua Project has? Ah, okay. Yes, that's right. I can't speak for Joshua because I don't know. But yeah, maybe. Everyone, I remember. Everyone's yeah. on this treadstone thing. Everyone is literally trying to create their own treadstone. This idea that you can just manufacture these savages, these killing machines, if you follow a few simple rules. If you, if, as Tunde would say, if you have the system. And what I think what we're finding out over time is actually boxing is a really organic sport. 
And there's a reason why it hasn't changed much in over a hundred years because the old approaches work. Tough until Saturday. Make, no, tough environment. Tough environments make tough people, and until, that's, that's yeah. ultimately what boxing's about. Until Saturday, Tunde will show us. <laughs> Has there ever? Can you think of another case where we've had? something similar to an AJ project in the past? Frank Luna. There's a guy that was dug up. They saw a big lump knocking people out in the amateurs and they thought, right, we can have this guy rule the heavyweight division. But And also, Frank had been boxing longer than Joshua. He had a deeper amateur, well, not really necessarily a deeper amateur experience, but he had, he had sort of done it the old school way. But I think the challenge with Frank ultimately was he, he just had that thing of, when he was hit, he stayed hit, kind of like Joshua does. That's the, that's, and you can't cure that. You just yeah. can't cure that. Frank could be winning a fight and someone would just hit him around the temple and you knew the fight was over because he'd just stiffen up. But Frank, would, Frank never went out on his back. Anytime Frank Bruno was stopped, stopped on his feet. Well, so far Joshua's that way, you see. Yeah, Frank Bruno wouldn't get dropped four times, that's for sure. And I think Frank Bruno would put him in a situation like Joshua put him himself in with Ruiz. He might. Yeah, hard to tell. But what we do know is, like, you know, Frank Bruno was in with some tough guys and some wily operators. It, he wasn't, you know, I mean, he wasn't, how's the best way to put it? He was thrown to the Lions pretty early. And he was just unlucky. You know, in a lot of the fights where Frank was stopped, he was doing well or he was leaving. But once he got hit, that was it. You know, system reset is there nothing you can do so i remember reading somewhere that when floyd mayweather was initially fighting he had a certain style but as he got older because of his hands or because of his you know as you get older things change so he changed his style not necessarily he always had that style he was raised in the shoulder roll style but oh. he had other layers. So when he was younger, he could be more attacking. And, you know, spectacular when people say Floyd was boring. Watch his early fights. He wasn't. But over time, experience taught Floyd that he could read opponents better than most people. And so he could then implement the, the Mayweather style. Because remember, that's the style his dad had. And they evolved it to a way where Floyd had it. And you can see from the way Floyd uses it. He's had that style for a long time. He didn't just learn it because it's natural. Yeah. You watch other people try and do it, and it's not natural. And the reason you know it's not natural is they don't use it in situations where it makes sense. So Mayweather, when Mayweather is stalking you, he doesn't use the shoulder roll. His hands will come up, and he'll walk you down with his hands up. He'll use the shoulder roll when, when he wants to draw you in and counter you. He knows exactly when to use it and when not to. And very few boxers actually understand that because they're not trained in the philosophy of the movement. They've merely sought to copy what Floyd did, but you have to understand the underlying philosophy behind that shoulder roll and why you do it, therefore when you do it. What is it? Well, the underlying philosophy. Yeah. So step one, you want to nullify your opponent's options. Right, that's why you that's why you have the stance he does where you point the lead shoulder at the nose. 
So yeah. you, you, want, you want to make sure that you're only looking at one variable, and that's the left hand. And if you notice, Mayweather struggles against left-handed orthodox fighters because they have their left hand's their natural hand. It's more dexterous, it's more powerful, and they can throw it faster. So that normally confuses Floyd. Miguel Cotto gave him hell. Oscar De La Hoya also gave him hell, and they're both left-handed orthodox fighters. So once you put that shoulder in that space, the right hand has a long way to go in order to land anywhere. So now your opponent's less willing to throw it, and all you then do is you draw them into throwing it to counter them, and then when they throw their jab, you can counter over the top of that. But there's so many nuances to it, and you ha- it's something you have to, you ha- I think you have to have learned it when you're young. It's not a style you want to pick up in adulthood. It's hard to make it work on a sustained basis. I can't imagine Joshua being that creative or clever in the ring. No, but maybe one day we'll see a heavyweight execute that style. And then that would be game-changing in its own right. Is that what John Pilata is going to do? John doesn't need to do that. <laughs> no, John, John, stylistically, John's fine. You know, he, he understands the journey that we're all on collectively. And September 27th at the Royal Albert Hall, for those listening, you will get another chance to see just how good this young man is. I want to know about the advantages and value of the different punches. So everyone talks about the value of the jab, but other than for distance, I don't really, yeah. So can you, can you walk through those? Jab essentially controls distance. I can disrupt you with my jab. It's the closest punch to your face that I have. And so I can really break you down with the jab. I, I, you know, if you watch old Larry Holmes fights, there's certain rounds that he won just by throwing a jab through no, no right hands, it was all jabs. And what that does, as soon as you plant your feet to, to throw a shot, I can just disrupt your rhythm. Anytime you're trying to build confidence and you get a jab to the face, you've got to reset because you don't know what's coming next. So I might jab you, I might double jab, I might throw a right hand after the jab, I might throw a right uppercut, I might jab into a left hook. And I couldn't do that unless I used the jab to A, get you thinking, B, disrupt whatever it is you're trying to do, and then, you know, God willing, create an opening. So the jab is, I, I describe it as, it's like an elephant's trunk. It looks very basic until you see it in action, and you are, this does so many different things. And that's why an elephant's trunk has 40,000 muscles in it. Nope, so then, so then your, your, your straight right hand, that's your power, that's, that's the hardest shot you can throw normally. And that's, that's meant to hurt, bust people up, knock them out. That's what you're trying to take someone out with if you're an orthodox fighter. If you're a southpaw, reverse it, so it's a straight left. You know, and that's what that's there for. It's, it's literally a power shot. You can lead off with it. If, if your timing's that good, you can lead off with it. And then you have the, you have the double effect of surprising your opponent and really hurting them. Um, the hooks, uh, everyone knows how to throw a hook. It's, it's the most natural punch we throw as human beings. I'll call that the aggression punch. That's the punch where you're really trying to rip into your opponent. And what's the purpose of the hook? The hook's just there to, to hurt. You know, you, what, you're, what you're trying to do is catch, catch your opponent by coming outside of their eye line and in. They're the best punches. So if, if I can't see it coming, when it hits uh. me, I can't brace myself and prepare myself. 
And then you know, if you look at the right hook, I call the right hook the money shot because it can always land. You can always land a right hook to the body. And a lot of guys do that. So your heavy-handed guys will throw a right hook to the body very early on. Why? They want you to feel that power. So Foreman would do it a lot. You've even still seen Carl Foch do it. When Carl's ready to fight, the first thing he'll do is he'll feign to jab upstairs and rip a right hook to the body. It's, it's a great way of just letting people know you can still crack. And then you, know, you can just subtly change the psychology of the fight. Uppercuts, same sort of principle, but I'll call the uppercut the honesty punch. Because if someone's moving their head a lot, you know, changing head level from high to low, I want to leave an uppercut down there. So that the next time they bob their head down, they know that there's something waiting for them. It keeps your opponent tall. So if you're Joshua against Ruiz, you want to use the uppercut so Ruiz can't make himself any smaller. You know, I want to yeah. st- stretch him. I want him to be as tall as possible because it makes my life easier when I'm, when I'm doing my thing. So I think that's probably what you want to look at it. The, um, the one I find interesting is probably the left uppercut because in sort of British and Western European boxing, it's not taught a lot. But if you look at Mexicans, Mexicans love the left uppercut. So th- they like to transition from a left uppercut into a left hook and then come back again with that left uppercut because that's their, like, their, that's their style and they understand that w- people are often lazy with their guard so you can always throw something up the middle just to keep the guy honest and stop him trying to move around too much. Why, why are the British and the Western Europeans not fans of that? Just the, the left uppercut. Just the way it's been taught. They're one-two guys through and through. They believe that's the, the easiest way to win a fight, and so they fight in that dimension. Thing with the Mexicans, they fight across multiple dimensions, mainly because they're quite small people. So when you're small and you're giving away advantages, you get creative in how you throw shots, and then that sort of codifies into a style. And then that's how you work. So Mexican fighters tend to be smaller. There's a higher work rate. You're looking for opportunities in split seconds, so sometimes you've just got to shoot the uppercut up the middle because that's the quickest way you're going to get a punch on their face. There's probably a longer discussion around different styles, and I'm, you know, you know, we're 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 not the New Age Boxing Podcast, but by all means listen to them, but we're not going to go three hours today. Maybe next time, because that was going to be my next question. Why are Southpaws feared? They just do things you're not used to. Like if you imagine in most boxing gyms, fighters are orthodox. And as strange as it sounds, boxers are creatures of habit. So I like I like my opponent to be predictable and dependable. I want to know the punches are going to come to the same place in the same place every time. I want to know the jab's going to come. You know, I'm going to see the jab through my right eye. I'm going to block it with my right hand. As soon as the southpaw shows up, remember, southpaws are used to dealing with orthodox guys because the southpaw is the exception. So so their whole fighting style is set up to deal with orthodox guys. So they will will move differently, and that will throw you off your... That will normally throw you off your game unless you've trained specifically for southpaws. And then it becomes interesting because when southpaws fight each other, they often seem lost because all of a sudden you've got a guy in front of you that's moving in a similar way to the way that you would. And then all of it, yeah, it throws you off. How do you define a Hall of Fame fighter? And are there any, can you see any in today's generation? So not the ones that have already retired, but ones that are currently fighting. Um, to get in the Hall of Fame, the first question is, who did you fight? And the criteria for that must be, you fought other people 
who are Hall of Fame caliber, even if they don't get in. But you have to have fought Hall of Fame caliber opponents. It's why for me, Calzaghi doesn't get in. Because at his peak, he didn't fight Hall of Fame opponents. Next level is you have to have beaten a lot of those guys. You know, and that's when that's when you start to separate the, the good from the great. When you start to look at, you know, the guys who have recently retired but will make it in. So Ward will make it into the Hall of Fame. Mayweather will make it into the Hall of Fame. Cotter will make it into the Hall of Fame. And they're different fighters. Cotter carries a lot of losses on his record, but you can't question his resume. You can't question the people he has faced because he's faced everyone of his generation. The same with Floyd. The same with Manny Pacquiao. The same with Andre Ward. These guys have faced everyone. And then there are guys like Juan Manuel Marquez who, while they don't have the illustrious record that those guys do, they fought everyone as well. Marquez has fought some of the greats. He's fought Hall of Famers. So that, that's the kind of level you have to be at to get into the Hall of Fame in my eyes. That's the level where we talk about you being great. And that's why Carl Fox will always be greater than Joe Calzaghe because Carl put it on the line. That's what we respect as boxing fans is when you put it on the line. If you look at the current heavyweights now, who you put in the Hall of Fame? Probably Fury because you're like, well, Fury fought Klitschko, beat him, fought Wilder, had the draw, but had the balls to make all of these fights and never ducked them when they were offered. We can't put Joshua there yet. Even though we can talk about Joshua's gold medal and we can talk about this, we can talk about that, he's not there. Someone like Lennox is there comfortably for the reasons we mentioned above. But then you look at the modern era and you say, who's well on their way? Canelo, by a mile. Mm. I, I think Canelo walks in the Hall of Fame now if he was eligible. And then we're looking at... They're going to give it to Lomachenko. Uh, and I can't really begrudge him. He's done a lot in a short space of time. But I don't know if he's had that real career-defining fight yet. Where there's someone who's kind of as good as he is and can give him trouble. I know people want to say Linares, but Linares was never at that level. He needs someone like a big lightweight or big light welterweight. Like a Mikey Garcia. He needs that kind of fight. Or mm. Broner. He needs that sort of fight where we can say, right, you're really testing yourself now. But he'd, he'd be another one. I think you're going to have to start looking at someone like Inoue yeah. as a potential great because he's just wiping the floor with everyone, albeit in a lower weight class. And then people who I'd expect to, to have that kind of career in the future, uh, Javante Davis will probably have it. Spence will probably have it. Crawford. The Ch one of the Charlos might take your pick. People say Golovkin, not for me, thank you. I just don't think his record stands up against some of the others. Why? He, and not, probably not through any fault of his own, he just hasn't got the names on his CV that we'd want to, to see from, a, from an all-time great, in my opinion. So he doesn't make it in for me. And then I probably wouldn't want to... Actually, as it says, I probably left people off, but I'm okay with that for now. It's Thursday. Yeah, but I mean, other than Fury, there's no Brit. Fox. Well, Fox isn't active. Enough. No, but he's already retired. Yeah, so Brits who are at that level. So, because... Listen, if Yard if... wins on Saturday, whoa, <laughs> he makes a strong argument. Okay, okay. It's, it's just, it just raises the question that if, if the generation of fighters that you're in isn't that strong, then it's very difficult for you to actually establish a 
Hall of Fame legacy. That's true. And that's the argument people use against guys like Eubank and Ben. But I actually say, look, both guys had opportunities to fight Roy Jones, James Tony, Bernard Hopkins. And they're all about the same age. It's not like they're different generations. So why those fights didn't happen, don't know. But that harms their legacy because Roy Jones fought yeah. Tony and Hopkins. Hopkins fought Tony. I mean, these guys have all put it on the line. And for me, as a boxing fan, I just want you to put it on the line every so often. Not every fight, but every so often just show me you're willing to fight anyone at any time. Okay, cool. Thank you. Are you happy now? Yes. Has your 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 casual fire been stoked? Well, it's raised a lot of other questions, but we can do that another time. <laughs> no, we'll do it another time. We'll do it in person because I know that it's not easy because you're not used to the whole doing it by phone thing. And and as I said earlier, this podcasting thing is not easy. You know, people just assume a bunch of mates get on, they talk about stuff, and then they go. But it takes time to learn how to do it. You've got to learn each other's rhythms. You've got to learn the flow. It's hard, but you've done well. And hopefully you, yeah. do, you do the things out of me that the Twitterverse and the Instagramverse were wanting to know. But we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see what the feedback is. You, know, you, you might get... Well, I learned, I learned, so... <laughs> there you go. You know, as long as you've got... So I don't stuff. care. <laughs> yeah. But probably a sensible point at which to shut down. So I just want to thank everyone who... who who lasted the course in this one, who saw it through to the end, really appreciate that. You know, at always, as always, you know, hit up the good doctor on Twitter at Blessed With Work. You can always catch me on Twitter at Highfield Boxing, Instagram Highfield Boxing. If you ever want to buy any cards for a loved one or special occasion, go to Instagram at the card king underscore between the underscore between card and king, and you're all good. Once again, thanks, guys, and hopefully there'll be another podcast out soon discussing the fallout from Kovalev versus Yard.